friends, I'm going to go ahead and get us started. Today for the Adult Forum, we decided since Earth Day happened this last week, and we were pretty busy with Easter, we thought we'd take a step back for a moment and talk around questions of ecology and environment. My principal question on this that I want to talk about today, and I think Lori and I just decided we're, we're going to stretch this into a two-part. Uh, next week we'll do another piece of environment. We'll look at questions of social justice and racism next week. But the, the main question I want to look at today is what role does faith, does theology, does church have to play in the overall wider discussion about environmentalism, about climate, about ecology? And I, I think this is a pretty important question to ask before we wade in. I had a mentor who went off to, when I was in seminary, who went off to a big important gathering of deans of cathedrals. And they were, this was more than a decade ago now, and they were talking with scientists and with theologians about climate. And my mentor said it was really wonderful listening to all of the scientists, and the scientists were saying all sorts of really interesting things, and then they brought the theologians on, and the theologians were using science from 20, 30 years ago, and were just totally out of date, and there was nothing interesting they had to say. And so I think it's really important that the church be careful how we engage these questions, and that we think about what is the role of faith, of theology, of communities like Holy Communion in these questions of environment. So I'm not going to play a scientist today. I'm not going to give you lots and lots of facts and figures about everything we know about the environmental crisis. I'll leave that to scientists. I want to focus on two very particular pieces that I think that the faith community brings to these questions. Two particular perspectives that we bring to these questions. Those two perspectives, those two ideas, I'm going to label vision and vocation. Vision and vocation. What is our vision around climate, around the environment, around ecology, and what is our vocation? So to start off, um, I want to talk for a moment about where we are. I'm not going to get too deep in science. I'm not going to give you facts and figures. But I have a friend who is a theologian. His name's Willis Jenkins. And he's maybe one of the more published, thoughtful folks around these questions of environment and Christian ethics lately. Willis, in recent years, has shifted how he's talking about climate change, how he's talking about environment. And I think it's a really interesting, it, it's not a word or an idea that he came up with, but I think Willis's decision as a lay Episcopalian theologian, he's a professor at the University of Virginia, to embrace a particular set of language is an important, um, it's an important moment because I think it, it helps us think through these things. The word that Willis is using more often is this word, Anthropocene. Anybody know what that word is, Anthropocene? Well, it's describing an era that 
an era dominated by humans. So what would that be in, what, what else, what are some other eras that are named like that? The Pleiocene, what else? What? Pleiocene, yeah. There are all these, and, and normally we think about this when we talk about little kids and dinosaurs, right? Um, there's like the Jurassic and the, you know, but, but what um, environmentalists, what environmental biologists, what folks who even study um, geology are telling us is that, and, and this is not a universally embraced concept yet, but uh, a lot of times when they talk about this, and they, they talk about it with dinosaurs for a reason, is because as you look through the layers of the earth, and, and as you look through the layers, and I grew up in Colorado, and right near my house, I-70 juts up into the mountains, and there's this cut that I-70 goes into, and you can see the different layers of rock, and they can date dinosaurs based on which layer of rock the dinosaur bones are in. Well, the other thing that they do with those layers of rock, besides the different fossils out, is they will do samples. And they can tell you how much carbon was in the atmosphere, how much oxygen was in the atmosphere. Based on what's in those soil, they can tell you sort of geologically, based on the geology of the soil, what the climate was like. The folks that are embracing this term Anthropocene are saying that in this period of time, human beings are affecting the climate more than anything else is. And you can even measure it in the soil. You can measure it in the layer that is going to be buried. When, we, when this period is studied, human beings' effects are going to be the most lasting effect. So to demonstrate that a little bit, I want to show you a video that comes from uh, the Smithsonian. I can get to it. In the 4.6 billion years of we humans are just a blip. We've been around for about 200,000 years, or less than one one hundredth of one percent of the Earth's timeline. Yet, in that sliver of time, we've made an unmistakable impact on the planet. For example, our numbers have swelled to over 7 billion people, consuming resources at an ever-increasing rate. As we've grown, we've made our mark on the world's forests. There are about half as many trees now as there were at the dawn of human civilization. We've altered more than 50% of the Earth's land by clearing fields, building cities, damming rivers, and even removing mountaintops in search of coal. We've also changed our atmosphere. The carbon dioxide we generated during the early Industrial Revolution is still warming the planet today, along with all our emissions since then. Even if we were to stop emitting CO2 right now, the gas we've already pumped into the atmosphere would last for tens of thousands of years. And so would the higher temperatures and rising sea levels it causes. We've affected other species as well. Our actions have stressed plant and animal populations around the world. In mammals alone, the extinction rate is now 55 times higher than before humans existed. We've caused so many changes to the planet so quickly that scientists have given this time period its own name. They're calling it the Anthropocene, or the Age of Humans. 
Like the Pleistocene and the Holocene, the Anthropocene represents a segment of the Earth's timeline. It includes things like the rise of fossil fuels as an energy source, the industrialization of agriculture, and the urbanization of more than half the world's population. We've caused a cascade of effects that have altered the landscape, the climate, the animals and plants around us, and even our own way of life. But these kinds of changes aren't unprecedented. In fact, the Earth is constantly in flux. Throughout its history, continents have broken apart and come together. Ocean currents have shifted and climates have fluctuated. Species have died out and new ones have emerged. So, how is this shit different? Right now, one species alone is driving these changes. What's even more unique is that we know we're doing it. That alone could be the most important shift in how we see ourselves today. By acknowledging that we're actively shaping the future of the planet, we can determine what shape that future will take. Now it's up to us to decide. What do we want our future to look like? So, talk to me for a minute. What did you notice? This idea of the Anthropocene, have you heard of it before? How does it differ from ways we may have talked about climate in our society? Lisa. Yep. So it's a way of talking about all of the changes, not just climate change or global warming, but extinctions, uh, all sorts of different, uh, you know, forests being halved, all sorts of different things. They didn't mention it, but the oceans are The oceans are a part of it, yep. What else? Yeah, there's a permanence to it. That, that point is part of what my mentor was uh, so engaged with. I mean, you saw that part in the video where the corks went in the top of the power plant, right? Even if we cut off all carbon um, emissions now, the amount of carbon that has gone into the atmosphere over the last 200 years, and especially over the last 60 years, is so great that the global warming would continue. We're not at a phase where we can say we're going to end global warming. We're at a place where we have to ask how many degrees of global warming are we going to encounter. Uh, most of the theologians that were at this conference were still talking about let's end global warming, let's end the climate crisis. That's not really something we can do. Uh, this Anthropocene thing says we've already affected the climate so much, we're not asking the question of how do we undo it. Mark. Yeah, it, it gets us into that question about how do we do this together? 
any one person's actions are important because all the people add up. But really the questions we ask about policy, the questions we ask about um, how we're going to engage as a community affect this question of the Anthropocene a heck of a lot more than whether anybody buys a hybrid, right? What else? Anthropocentrism. What does anthropocentrism mean? Human-centered. Human-centered, right? So your anthropocene, anthropos is human. Scene is age. Anthropocentrism would be human-centered. So when we start talking about vision, part of the reason why it's important for people of faith to talk about questions of vision, because scientists talk about numbers, they talk about data, they talk about things that are observable, and they might come up with a theorem about what is possible, but the realm of religion, the realm of philosophy, but especially the realm of prophetic religion, is to ask what should be. professor that said, don't should on me, right? Should is one of those words we really don't like hearing from the pulpit that often, but it's, it's a fundamentally theological word because all of the prophets, um, down to Jesus, talk about what should be, what the world as it could be, the world as God dreams of it, would be the words that Desmond Tutu uses. What's Jesus's primary image for the world as it should be, the world as it could be? Earth and harmony. What, what, do you know Jesus' words, the ones that Jesus preaches about the most often? Think about the, the parables. What does Jesus say? The, uh, what is the mustard seed like? What are so many things like? The kingdom of God. So, as Christians, we have this image from Jesus' preaching. The kingdom of God. Uh, Martin Luther King had another name for it. Do you know MLK's name for it? Beloved Community. I heard a great one this week, God's Economy. God's Economy. Um, just to nerd out with, for a minute with um, 
roots. You all know I entered out of that language. So, anybody know what the root um, of economy is? It's oikos. Um, it's Greek for household. So the economy is how you manage your household or the place where you live. Um, it's the same root you have for ecology. Um, ecology is also oikos. Um, so part of what I find really interesting is we, we often have this sense of tension around you know, what is good, makes good economic sense is often seen as being bad for the eco ecology, bad for the ecosystem. What is good for the ecosystem is often seen as making bad economic sense. Well, the Greek root would have you say, well, these are closer tied together than you think. So part of what some of the most interesting scientists are asking, uh, and when you get into the realm of public, ecology, uh, public policy is, how have we been limiting our economic questions in a way that is gonna be economically disastrous for us? This gets us into the questions about like the carbon tax. So one of the big propositions out there, and it's, it's happening a lot in Europe, is that companies would start getting taxed based on the amount of carbon they let out into the atmosphere. And they, they're doing that because they're saying there's a hidden cost to doing business the way we're doing it. Uh, we're not counting the cost. It's gonna be much more expensive for our future generations if we don't do something about greenhouse emissions now. So we're gonna try to tax greenhouse gases. Uh, there are questions about this too in terms of should we be taxing folks who overfish? Should we be taxing folks who put so many inputs into the soil you know, is there, are there ways to economically incentivize better ecology? And I think we're just at the very beginning of that at public policy. But it's one of those questions when, when you just focused on capital, uh, sometimes capital in the short term doesn't take into account the ability to continue to produce over the long term. So these being linked is an important part of vision. <coughs> So when we talk about vision, we talk about the kingdom of God. I actually think Christianity um, and, and sort of Judeo-Christianity, Islam, uh, comes from a point of strength. Given where we are today, uh, we know that we are at a time of the Anthropocene. We're at a time where climate has changed. We have changed climate. And we're going to continue to feel the effects. We can, we can do some work to limit what's ahead. But we're going to continue to feel the effects. The oceans are going to continue to rise just based on how much carbon has already gone into our atmosphere from humans, how many trees, how much vegetation we've lost. We're, we're going to continue to feel these effects. So I actually think that our traditions come from a place of strength when it comes to these questions, especially when we talk about weather and water. Why would that be? Why would Judeo-Christianity and Islam be at a place of strength when it comes to talking about um, human-influenced climate, particularly when it comes to weather and water? Anybody? We come from a desert people. Desert people. Our sacred stories were mostly written in deserts. 
there's this really brilliant writer. He works for the U.S. Fish, he used to work for, I don't know if he still does, uh, but the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and he um, maps water paths in the American desert. A guy named Craig Childs. Uh, he wrote a book called The Secret Knowledge of Water, and he's as much a poet as he is a scientist. It's really, really, really beautiful writing. But Craig Childs says there are two ways to die in the desert. Thirst and, anybody know? Drowning. Thirst and drowning. When you're in the desert, the problem with the desert is often that there's too little water. But it's also that when water comes, it comes all at once. It comes too quickly. So you get all of the deserts around the world, the American Southwest, this is absolutely true in Israel-Palestine, the shapes of the desert. Think about those slot canyons in Utah. Do you know what shapes those? Catastrophic floods that happen with pretty with, with a lot of regularity. It's about once every couple years, just a huge rush of water will come all at once. Because deserts are drainage places. When a lot of water comes, all of those geographical shapes are because a lot of water moves really a lot at once. It's not the kind of slow, steady rain that we've been blessed with here in St. Louis the past few days, where there's that nice, gentle rain that soaks into the ground. I'm still a Coloradan when it comes to rain. This kind of rain in Colorado is, is like a godsend. Um, when you ask people in Colorado uh, how things are going, a lot of times they'll say, we need some more water. Because I grew up in high desert. If you go to the archaeological sites in Israel, Palestine, one of the things that you'll discover is that all of the architecture was, it was to make human dwellings, but they were also really interested in water catchment. You can see in these ancient towns in the desert, every rooftop drained into a, um, a, a, a sort of, a, it, you might think of them as open sewers, they weren't at all. They, they drained into channels, and the channels would converge in the town square, and under the town square there would be cisterns. How often does the word cistern come up in the Bible? How often does water come up in the Bible? Give me an example, give me three examples of terror and water, of really scary water in the Bible. Noah. Noah, Noah's one. Give me another one. Exodus. Jonah. Jonah. I'll count Jonah, but the fish is sort of its own thing. What else? It is a storm. Jesus walking on water. the spirit moves over the deep, Genesis tells us, right? Uh, they say that the story of Exodus, that, that um, hymn that Noah sings and then Miriam improves, not Noah, that Moses sings and Miriam improves in Exodus, um, they say that there are these ancient roots to the ancient stories that are underneath the Bible 
about God conquering the chaos of the waters. This idea of water being chaos is a constant image. And the idea of that part of the human work is to tame the chaos is an ongoing question. If all your water comes all at once, how do you capture it so that it can sustain life in all of that time when there's not water? There's other images that are in the Bible as well. One of the biggest images of God's blessing throughout the Psalms, throughout the Hebrew Bible, it even comes up for Jesus, is when the desert blooms. Right? Like the water courses of the Negev, Negev Desert. After these rains, the water courses fill with flowers. There's this idea that a sign of God's blessing is this balance that happens in the dry land and the desert land. It's, it's a really interesting feature of our religious tradition that our relationship with water is a very, very spiritual thing. We're about to experience this uh, at 10.30 when we do a baptism. Our relationship with water is a sacred and spiritual thing. And it, it's worth thinking about this vision about what is the human relationship to water. How do we relate to water? You know, we're starting to, in St. Louis, begin to deal with a big problem we've had around our relationship to water. Does everybody know about the $5 billion settlement you're going to start helping pay for? What's that? You're working on it. David's working on it. So the EPA won a major case against St. Louis because our sewer systems, when we get torrential rains, um, our sewer systems, for the most part, here in New City, absolutely, out in the city, absolutely, when we get torrential rains, the storm sewer and the sewer sewer merge, and, um, and we get sewage in all of our riverways. That's why when you cross in Heman Park over the river to Pear, it smells so terrible, because sewage has gone into that riverway. So $5 billion worth of um, sewer work is going to happen in St. Louis, and we're all going to pay for it in our sewer bills. Now, your sewer bill is going to skyrocket over the next decade, because, and you're going to start seeing it very soon. Yeah, yeah. So our relationship with water matters, uh, and it, it's hitting our pocketbooks. And, and MSD was really good at how they encountered it. There's another piece of that that this, this combo of ecology, economy, oikos, also there's a piece about vision, right? Martin Luther King talked about beloved community. We'll get into this a lot more next week. But when we talk about vision, we talk about our, our set of relationships. There's another piece of this that I'm going to just put a pin in for this week. We'll do next week. Has anybody heard the term environmental racism? Yeah, 
So when the, the effects of climate are being felt most by those who are the least empowered by a society. So do you know where the sewage pumping stations in University City were supposed to be located on the first draft? They were going to be up in the third ward, right? Uh, lowest income housing. That's, and, you know, like from an economic standpoint, this makes sense. We're going to have to buy some houses and, and put a pumping station up there. So we're going to buy the cheapest houses in U-City. We're going to do it up there in the third ward. But a number of folks started asking the question, why is it going up there? Did you think we weren't going to stand up to that? What's another example of environmental racism? Flint, Michigan. Flint, Michigan. How many years are we since Flint, Michigan it still doesn't have drinkable water? I think we're at five now. Yeah. The Lower Ninth Ward. The Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans. We'll talk about more of this next week, but, but there is this overall question about we are going to be experiencing ongoing effects from climate change. The Anthropocene has arrived, and we're going to experience these effects. And, unsurprisingly, humans have engineered it so that the people who are going to be most affected are least able to advocate for their own rights. So part of the role of the community of faith is to ask the questions of justice, to ask the questions of what should the world be like? What does God dream that the world should be like? And how is the reality we're encountering squaring with that vision that our prophets put out there? I want to go over to the other question about vocation. There's, there's a particular word in the Bible that is shaped uh, the Judeo-Christian understanding of vocation and climate. Does anybody know what that word is I, in the English? Ooh, somebody said it. Dominion. Dominion. Where does that come from? Dominion. Yeah, the man had dominion over the animals, or humanity had dominion over the face of the earth. It's in the uh, first chapter of Genesis. When God creates humanity... God creates them with dominion. So, English is a really tricky language, especially to translate from Hebrew. But this word dominion uh, gets used in the King James Bible. Arguably a time when we had a very different vision of government than we have now. Right? But what connotations does dominion have? Power. Kingliness. Domination. Power over. So um, the words usually come together as dominion over. Ellen Davis, another, apparently all of our good environmental theologians in the Episcopal Church are lay people, which doesn't surprise me. But Ellen Davis is a um, really important theologian at uh, Duke, an Episcopal lay person. She talks about the um, Hebrew word rada uh, that is often translated as dominion in English. And Rada does have a sense of power, responsibility, governance. But she says the interesting thing is actually when you get into this preposition. Uh, in the Hebrew, uh, Rada B is the phrase. And, and that B, um, Bereshit Bere is how um, Genesis begins. It begins twice with this preposition. 
usually does not connotate over. Bereshit, bere. So bereshit is that same preposition. What is the first word in Genesis in English? In. In the beginning. So part of what Ellen Davis asks is, if we translate this preposition as in at the very beginning, why don't we translate it that way 20 verses later? So humanity has power in creation rather than over. How does that change what we, how we read our role? Power in creation. There's a collaborative sense. What else? We're part of it. Power over carries the connotation that it's a right. Yep. Yep. There's there's an evolving. There's a sense of um, that. What is our role in this? Do we have a right to to assert? To, um, to pull all of the resources out of. Does the earth exist for us, or do we exist in the midst of creation? Uh, part of our worldview from the earliest chapters of Genesis is that humanity does have a special role, right? Uh, Genesis also says uh, that God created humanity. Woman and man, God created them in the image of God. So what some of the interesting theologians are asking right now is, what does it mean in the image of God, in the image of the creator? What is the role of someone who is creative if you have power in creation? So I'm going to give you just one example of something that I find interesting. I'm going to give you two examples uh, of something I find interesting in congregations in the ways that faith communities are responding. So the first example is really, really simple. And it's the number of congregations that have realized that they have some of the biggest roof spaces at the right angles uh, to accept solar panels. This building that we're in right now is built as a traditional Episcopal Catholic-style church which means that which direction would, have the, would the altar have been? East. Which, and, and interestingly, because of our tradition, um, we built in the traditional way of sort of a ship style with a tall sloped roof. The idea was that this was the ark that we're in, or this is the ship that we're all in, the, the sail on the ship of the church. And so if you look up, it's supposed to look like a ship, right? But, but it means that we have this huge south-facing roof. There are a lot of congregations, including a number of cathedrals in Europe, that have put big solar arrays on their roof. We're asking that question. We're trying to figure out how much we could, um, we could make that work economically at Holy Communion. But that's one way that congregations are engaging. There's another one I find really fascinating. Um, I couldn't pull it up really well. I, I can get you a worksheet. But the Church of England, this last year and the year before, invited everyone in the church to consider giving something up for Lent. Do you know what it was? Single-use plastic. 
they put together a Lenten calendar that looked a little bit like an Advent calendar. And for every day in Lent, they had something else you could give up. So one day in Lent, you were supposed to not bring grocery bags to the grocery store. That's probably the most commonly known one. But one day in Lent, you were supposed to not use a plastic straw. And one day in Lent, you were supposed to bring your own silver cutlery along with you instead of using plastic cutlery. But they invited all of the people to, over the course of Lent, do several different practices to, um, to eliminate their use of plastic. In one day in Lent, I loved this one. One day in Lent, they invited people to really engage and try to get themselves off of all the mailing lists of all the credit card offers and things that come in because the little plastic windows on the envelopes um, are problematic. They don't recycle. It means the paper can't be recycled, and it means that it makes me wonder about, because we use those here at church, right? But all of these ways that the church was making the congregations that people think about, they said, give up plastic for Lent. So, I'm going to invite you to ask some questions. But the reason why I bring the plastic thing up, as Mark said, we're into questions that are communal questions. We're into questions that we're not going to be able to answer as individuals. And as I began this conversation, we have to be careful as a religious community. And, and I think we have to be careful about how we engage these questions of climate, right? We're beyond the phase with climate change where we can really talk about simply conservation. Where we can just say, well, we want to try to stop, we want to try to limit, we want to try to... If we're going to engage these questions really wholeheartedly, if we're going to engage these questions holistically, we have to accept that the Anthropocene is a reality. Humans have affected the environment. We're going to continue to affect the environment. So one of the things I think a religious community has the benefit to bring is a question of religious practices. We're a people who are used to practicing what we believe. We're used to engaging questions of diet. We're used to engaging questions of um, celebration. We're used to engaging questions about how do we hold resources in common. And we often do that through spiritual practice. We do that through engaging in prayer, engaging in study, engaging in conversation, engaging in justice work together. So how do we bring the realm of spiritual practice to how we engage ecology economy? So a group of us were out at um, Per Marquette yesterday, and a number of us went and visited the Audubon Center uh, in between the Missouri and Mississippi River there. It's one of the most important flyways uh, in, in, really in the world. Uh, converges right there. And one of the, we watched this video with the kids. It was raining, so we spent 10 minutes of it inside watching this video. But they talked about how they had built a barge in the middle of the Missouri River so that they could recreate turn habitat that had been destroyed, T-E-R-N habitat that had been destroyed. And I thought, what an interesting image about the role of humanity as a co-creator. You know, if we've affected the environment so much already, sort of unintentionally, how can we bring intention into 
how we affect the environment. I think that part of the answer is we've got to practice. We've got to try things. We've got to engage. So I've got three discussion questions for you. First, what signs of the time, to use a Roman Catholic phrase, but what signs of the time have you seen in our environment? What worries you? Have you seen a change in the environment in your lifetime? Second, what examples of environmental racism have you encountered, heard about on the news, or seen firsthand? And then third, what practices toward the environment give you hope? Are there practices you would like to try out? Are there practices you'd like to try in community? I'm going to give you all 15 minutes, and then I'm going to come back, and we'll do a little question and answer and discussion. Talk amongst yourselves.